Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome. I'm your producer, Molly Stevens, and here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. If you've heard previous episodes of this podcast, you know that we try to cut to the heart of what makes leaders tick, and this week we think we got it right. Former Chancellor of D.C. Public Schools Kaya Henderson is one of those rare leaders who's really willing to go there, get deep, and share not only how she measures her own personal and professional success, but how her favorite mistakes have shaped her leadership. Our conversation really packs a punch, and not in the way you might assume if you know much about Kaya. Listen and let us know what you think by emailing leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Kaya Henderson at the Leaders Table. Kaya Henderson, welcome to the Leaders Table. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited to to talk with you, to learn about you and your leadership path and some of the lessons that you've learned in leading in some really interesting places. So let me let me just start right off out, out, right out of the gate. Um, as a former chancellor of DC Public Schools, what do you know to be true about leadership today that you did not quite know before you were chancellor? Um, I think before I was chancellor, I knew that um, leading with heart, leading with empathy, leading um, in a way that is respectful of other people was really important. Um, It's sort of who I am authentically, but I never really understood how important um, that authenticity and that empathy would be. Uh, until I got to D.C. public schools, frankly. And I think what I have come to figure out is the world is hungry for really authentic leadership. People want to connect with people. And leaders, if they do their jobs well, um, have an amazing opportunity to connect with people and to make them feel like something, like they're part of something but only if it's important to them, only if it is, if it has some impact on their lives and they feel some agency around that. And so I think um, ultimately it boils down to the golden rule, right? Treat others the way you want to be treated. And I think that is true in leadership as well. Um, and I, I just, you know it, but 
uh, it makes a huge difference, I think, when you are in the big chair. Mm-hmm. Now, D.C. is a storied community, right? It's the home of Langston Hughes. You have, you know, D.C. for, for decades um, has been synonymous with a black community that was um, that that was very much in, that is rooted in the community, and that's changing a little bit, and kind of challenging the way that D.C. public schools serve uh, serve Washingtonians in a in a in a different sort of diversity. What did, what did you learn about diversity uh, in your years at, at DCPS? It's so that's such an interesting question. I mean, because many people don't know that for a really long time. D.C. was the best place to get an education for African-Americans in this country. Mm. We were the, we opened the first public high school for, um, at the time, Negro children, mm. um, Dunbar Senior High School, which still stands today. Um, and our proximity to Howard University actually made our school system one that was tremendously excellent because... All of those folks who were graduating from Howard with bachelor's and master's and doctorate degrees couldn't get jobs in other places, and so they rolled right down the street to D.C. public schools. And so we had some of the most talented African-American scholars who were teaching in our traditional public schools. But over the last sort of 30 or 40 years, um, the demographics have been shifting. Um, Most recently in the last 20 years, we've seen D.C. go from a predominantly African-American city, affectionately known as Chocolate City, Mm -hmm. um, to now a melange, I guess. (laughs) And, uh, you know, people would say all the time, being chancellor is such a hard job, you know, raising student achievement and meeting community demands and all of these things. But the hardest part of my job, I think, was trying to uh, or helping people understand that I am the chancellor for everybody. I'm not just the chancellor for residents who are moving into the city, who are new to the city, or who are rediscovering the traditional public school system. Um, I'm not just the chancellor for the folks who have been utilizing the traditional public schools. I'm the chancellor for all of those folks. And those folks have very different interests, very different demands, very different timelines. And so I felt, you know, a real pressure, I think, from newer residents. Um, They want what they want right now. And there was sort of a lack of, I think, perspective about uh, what some of the folks who have been in D.C. public schools wanted and needed and the need to balance all of that. I think that was the toughest part of my my job, trying to uh, meet the needs of such varied constituencies. Mm -hmm. Now, as a leader, though, how do you how how do you balance that? I would imagine that you can't quite get all the interests and stakeholders to, to live on a one sheeter. There, there's no Excel spreadsheet that's going to help you to figure out how to make decisions, how to balance really important decisions about, about resources, about, uh, about capacity or about, uh, or even about, um, about equity. Uh, how, how do you balance those things? How do you, how do you get to know what the stake, the, the, what the interests are and then ultimately balance them in the, in your day-to-day leadership? I mean, first you have to spend time with people, right? You've mm-hmm. got to be out in the community talking to parents and families. You have to be in schools um, all around the city, understanding 
the differing needs of different schools, you've got to be really present. Um, you can't lead from central office. You've got to lead from out in the streets. And mm. so um, spending time, personally spending time, but also setting up systems where our team members were spending time in the community every single day. We had a community action team that attended every single neighborhood meeting, civic association meeting, ANC meeting in all of our communities. And literally every day I got a written report for them from them about what was going on. And so every single day I was aware of new issues and, you know, we had our ear to the ground. But there is, I mean, there's no perfect way to balance. I think what you try to do is you try to um, give everybody something, right? You mm-hmm. can't meet the needs of everybody all at once. I mean, I watched in the, um, in the Fenty administration, Mayor Fenty had a theory that if we built, rebuilt um, the schools in Upper Northwest and attracted new families, um, into DCPS that all boats would rise. And so we saw disproportionate uh, resources spent in some of our richer areas of town um, and no trickle-down benefit for the rest of town. And so um, part of the work that I had to do was to begin to remedy that imbalance and invest more heavily in the parts of town that hadn't seen the kinds of school modernizations or the heavy investments that preceded my time as chancellor. As long as people um, know that you're trying to be fair, as long as people know that you know their concerns and you can articulate, I can't do this right now, but it's on my radar screen, I'm coming with it, people Mm -hmm. will work with you on those things. Hmm. How did you get to see yourself as a leader? I know that you started as a teacher in New York. Um, how did you How did you make that jump to ultimately come to lead such an important district? It was a bit of a crash course. So um, after, I, after my teaching commitment, uh, I joined the recruitment team at Teach for America where I was one of seven recruiters. Mm-hmm. And after a year of recruiting, I was promoted to director of admissions, which meant I was now supervising the six other people who were just my colleagues. And that was my, <laughs> that was my initiation into leadership professionally. I had been a leader on campus. I had been a leader in high school, but it's a very different thing when you move from being a colleague with people to now kind of leading the team. And so I had to think very carefully about how I maintained my relationships, but also, you know, was in a position where I could help hold people accountable, where I could push people harder than they had been pushing themselves. And it was a delicate balance, um, but I think I negotiated it pretty well. Every single day I got under my desk and I cried because Mm -hmm. I was managing the largest team at Teach for America. The stakes were super high. If we didn't do our job, there would be no core members. Um, And it was really, really hard. But after I cried, and I think all leaders leaders need a space to to let their emotions do their thing in private, but then I'd get out from under my desk and go at it again. And you make mistakes, and you fix the mistakes, and you just keep going. Hmm. What were some of your favorite mistakes or failures from those those first days of of managing those those, those people in that environment at Teach for America? I think um, one of the biggest mistakes is real was realizing that not everybody operates the way I operate. And so um, 
I, I can compartmentalize really well. And so I would, you know, have a really have to have a really tough conversation with one of my subordinates who remember is also my friend at this point. And after the tough conversation, she'd go in her office and I'd go in my office. And then I'd come out and be like, hey, do you want to go to lunch? Because for me, right, that was work and now it's time to relax. <laughs> Not everybody is like that. And so I learned, I learned the hard way that uh, different people sort of manage themselves in different ways. Um, you know, I would get up really early in the morning because my days were full of meetings and I'd work from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. because it was quiet and whatnot. And um, people expected that if I sent an email or what have you, that they needed to respond. That wasn't the message that I was conveying. And so I had to figure out how to use the send later function. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because people were all freaked out that I was up at four and they were not. Um, and so, you know, you just learn that different people manage themselves differently. And I think as a leader, it's really important to recognize that because, you know, part of the, the main job of a leader is to make their, allow, give their people the best environment for success. Mm -hmm. And if your people are worried about not responding to an email or, you know, worried about how you're thinking about them, then they can't, you know, soar. And I think mm -hmm. that's what a leader's job is. That seems so unique to be someone who works so hard and so around the clock to get out ahead of the kind of the massive bit in front of you to also allow your people the ability to have a life and have regular hours and, and not have that stress that clearly you felt is just seems very, um, very special, I think, as, a, as, as someone who's very interested in people who manage things. Well, I think if you are, I mean, you have to be willing to put it all on the line. Otherwise, you can't expect other people to put it all on the line. And everybody doesn't have to put it all, all on the line every single day. But there are going to be times when I do need you to stay late or I need you to, I mean, you know, before I, I started, before I was officially employed for D.C. public schools, um, as a consultant, I managed new teacher recruitment for DCPS. And I literally managed a staff of people who were employees of DCPS. I was not an employee, but when it was time to open schools and we didn't have every teacher in place, you know, we all spent the night in central office to make sure that the job got done. And if people don't see their leaders being willing to do whatever it takes, then they're not going to be willing to do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. What what are you most proud of in all of the, the various places and ways that you've led? What do you point to as like I'm I'm so, I'm the most proud of that up, up until this moment? So I mean I think there is the sort of professional pride and personal pride. Professionally, I am most proud of the fact that we were able to take a school district that people kind of had declared dead and we reinvigorated it, and people have a tremendous level of confidence in this city about D.C. public schools. Our residents are demanding things that they would have never demanded. They were, they were previously just walking away because they didn't believe in our ability to deliver. And so I'm most proud that we've kind of changed the city's perspective on the public schools in town. Personally, I think what I'm most proud of 
is I strive to be authentically Kaya, to be the same person, you know, at work, as I am at home, as I am in church, as I am at the neighborhood bar, right? And and <laughs> to use my personal experiences, um, my relationships, all of the things that make me me, I bring that to my leadership. And I think that I've been able to be consistent and authentic uh, in my leadership, and that is what I'm most personally proud of. Hmm. Now, we are, we still are in a society that doesn't always allow women, allow people of color to be that authentic in all areas of their lives. So many, many of us feel like there is my work face, and then there's my home face, and then there's my face for other aspects of my life. How do you, how do you talk to other other women leaders, other pe- other uh, people of color who are who are growing in their own leadership, about be, about being that authentic across all that they do. Do you find do you, do you find that to be a regular aspect of your your own mentorship? I tell people all the time, like the world is waiting for your particular brand of leadership Mm. and you minimizing yourself or not bringing your full set of experiences to your leadership is actually robbing the world of your unique brand of leadership. I I was at Harvard's Graduate School of Education last week and I met with a group of young women who... Um, are aspiring to the superintendency. Most are young women of color. And um, they sort of said, you know, can can we go out to dinner with you? Because we just want to have real conversation. And like, how are you able to just be you? And I said, well, how, you know, how she, they said, how were you allowed to just be you? And I said, nobody allowed me to just be me, right? Like, <laughs> this is something that you got to take on your own terms. I... It's too much to manage being two or three different people. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, for me, I think I just fundamentally believe from, I mean, part of my work is really spiritual for me. And I believe that God has brought me through a set of experiences to prepare me for this particular time and to ignore my African-Americanness or to ignore my womanhood or my motherhood or whatever. And part of the reason why... I was a good chancellor is because I had kids in D.C. public schools, right? Mm. So I could play down my motherhood um, or I could, you know, share with families that we're in the same struggle, right? I'm in the lottery, too. We didn't get any of our choices. And so, you know, let's figure out what we do to make this better for all families. Um, So I I intentionally tell people uh, who ask me for advice to be authentic in their leadership. I find that so powerful. Um, what what do you think that the rest of America doesn't get about schools, about ed reform, about making making schools work for everyone? And I'm talking about everyone in cities, in, in our rural environments. What what's missing from the conversation? So I think there's a lot missing from the conversation. <laughs> First of all, I mean I think that people need to understand that school today cannot be what it was 10 years ago or 40 years ago or 100 years ago, and it largely is. Mm. Um, Times have changed. What kids need to know and be able to do have changed. And 
you know, when you look at every other sector from how you shop, right, to how you bank, to how you do everything, everything is radically different than it was 20 years ago, except education. And I think people have this nostalgia for their own school experience, and that has held us back collectively from allowing real innovation to flourish. I mean, even what we think is innovation, right, I think the charter sector is the most kind of scaled level of innovation that we've seen in education. Really, if you pull back the covers, it looks pretty much like the same old, same old school, Mm -hmm. right? Different people, slightly different philosophies, but kids sitting at desks, like Mm -hmm. teachers teach in the same way, doing the same things. And so I think there, I think one, we have to let go of the nostalgia of what school used to be and allow for a much more dynamic, um, uh, landscape for school to be really, really different and not just be within four walls and not just be time bound, but really, you know, I think competency-based education is kind of the wave of the future. I also think that uh, what people don't understand about schools is teaching kids is really hard. It's not easy. Not just anybody can do it. And we have reduced the, the, think our estimation of teachers so, you know, significantly, and not just the public, right? Even the education establishment. I mean, we try to teacher-proof things because we don't believe in the people who are standing in front of our classrooms. And I think, you know, any profession is only as good as its professionals. And if if we don't reinvest and and rethink how we treat teachers, um, we're never going to get where we need to go. Finally, I would say, you know, all of all of society's problems show up in the schoolhouse, right? But schools are not equipped to deal with all of society's problems. And so, you know, any given school, whether they serve, you know, 100 kids or 800 kids, whether they're in a city or in a rural area, um, whether they are in the suburbs, whether they are, you know, what, whatever the diversity is, they, no school is fully equipped to meet the needs of all of the kids who show up at their door. And so we try to pick kids off into special populations or create boutique opportunities. Um, and it reneges on our commitment to all students. And I think Uh, We have to, one, get serious. I mean, we have to really decide if public education is for all kids or if it's for some kids. And if it is for all kids, then we've got to figure out how to not leave the burden of society on schools to fix. I'll give you one quick example. I just read this article in the Post yesterday or so about some new report, maybe out of UCLA, saying that D.C. public schools is more segregated now or one of the most segregated places in the country, right, schools. Um, And that's not a surprise to anybody, but this article had nothing to say about housing patterns, had nothing to say about transportation, had nothing to say about the various public policy issues that, that caused the vast segregation that uh, that we see in the city. And to just say, like, and, and literally the article said, schools haven't done enough to integrate. Well, schools cannot solve all of society's problems. 
right? And But we expect them to. And so I feel like we have got to figure out how to move some of these issues to people who can actually solve them so that schools can actually be good at what they're supposed to be good at, which is teaching and learning. Hmm. When you, you know, we talk a lot about innovation uh, here on the podcast. We have guests who are uh, really interestingly trying to solve big problems from the school to prison pipeline to uh, to reimagining schools in the way that, that you were just uh, just describing. If you could do one thing, just one thing uh, out of the this kind of whole batch of stuff called innovation in schools over the next 10 years, what, what would that be? Um, I would figure out how to change the graduation requirements so that you could allow kids to demonstrate learning in new and exciting ways. Mm. I think the Carnegie unit is useless. Um, kids sit in class for a prescribed amount of time and they might learn or they might not learn. Um, but moving to a system where kids have to demonstrate mastery of a subject and allowing them to do that in multiple ways, not just on a test, I think is the thing that could spur real innovation in this space. Hmm. That's so interesting. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was about uh, whether or not we have the right language or indicia of success. Uh, you are uh, the unique chancellor to have left the chancellorship with the numbers up. High school graduation is up. NAEP scores up. Uh, you know, by all all numerical indicia, DC public schools is in a different place than it was, you know, eight years ago. Um, but. That that makes you ask. That makes me want to ask you whether or not we are looking at the right things, to and whether we not or not we have the right language to measure schools' progress. I mean, part of that was part of the work when I became chancellor. Lots of people were measuring DCPS's success by a variety of things, and so you just couldn't win, right, when you don't have a shared set of expectations around what success looks like. And so we went through a citywide process saying what's most important to parents and families, and then we set out five big goals um, that reflected what was important to parents and families but were measurable, academic achievement, you know, moving our lowest-performing schools, um, increasing the graduation rate, um, student satisfaction. We had a goal that 90% of our kids would love their school, and people chuckle at that, but parents said they want their kids to be happy and safe at school. Um, and so, you know, and, and then enrollment. And those were the goals that we sort of said, this is how you should measure us. These are the right set of things. And I think... If we hadn't redefined what success meant at D.C. public schools, there would be people who today would say, oh, D.C. public schools is still no good. But I, I think oftentimes we latch on to test scores or graduation rates. But I think we have to have a more holistic set of measures that help us understand whether or not kids are progressing and whether or not kids are succeeding. Hmm. You know, applying that same line of questioning to your own life, I, I wonder how you, how do, how you measure your own success, your own impact, uh, whether or not you're meeting your own life's purpose as a leader. So that's a good question. Um, I feel like there are sort of two criteria for me. One is, 
you know, am I making a difference in the world? Um, I was brought up with the sort of community service ethic and the kind of to whom much is given, much is required. And um, I have this sense of responsibility. And so I always ask myself, am I making a difference in the world, right? Um, I could have a great job. I could get paid a lot of money. But if the needle's not moving somewhere, then I'm not successful as far as my own definition. And then the other piece for me is, am I happy? Um, because I think ultimately, you if you work hard and you're making an impact, but you're unhappy and your family doesn't like you and you, you know, you don't enjoy getting up every day, then what's the point? So mm-hmm. for me, if I'm making a difference and I am happy, then that is success. Mm, awesome. So on the, in that line of questioning, walk us through a day in the life of Kaya Henderson from about the time you wake up in the morning um, till about, oh, let's say, 10 or 11 a.m. 10 or 11 p.m. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a short day. Um, so most days I get up and uh, unfortunately the first thing I do is reach for my phone and check social media to see what's happening We're in all the guilty. world. Um, (laughs) uh, and then I try to get up and do some exercise. So I do water aerobics a couple times a week, or I'm on a treadmill or I take the dog for a long walk. And then, um, my day begins. So now, you know, I am working from home and doing some consulting. And so usually it means me sitting at the table, um, at the dining room table with my computer up and responding to emails, taking calls. Um, Sometimes it means going out to meetings, lunch meetings or coffees uh, to talk to various people about all kinds of things. Um, It might mean a speaking engagement uh, at a conference or on a panel. Um, And it usually also means cooking dinner during the day (laughs) because one of my commitments to my family uh, after I left D.C. public schools was to try to put a hot home-cooked meal on the table more often than not. Um, So I just finished my dinner for tonight. Um, And uh, and then usually I have some kind of an evening activity, um, either a reception to go to, Luckily, I still get invited to things um, or dinner with friends or dinner at home with family. Um, I usually like to watch a little TV in the evening. Um, Lots of shows that I tape and just kind of will binge on from time to time. Um, I'm trying to get better about getting back to reading. Uh, we'll, We'll see how that goes. I think one of the things that um, you train your brain to do when you're a superintendent is think in like 15 minute intervals. And so you can't focus on any one thing for more than 15 minutes. I've given myself like the worst case of ADD. So, (laughs) so trying to read a little bit um, every day. And then, um, and usually I do a walk in the evening uh, with my partner and the dog and we'll walk for a long time. And that's when we talk and kind of catch up on things. Where's the kid going to camp? What schools are we applying to for the lottery? How was your day? How was my day? That kind of thing. And then by 10 o'clock, I usually am uh, getting ready for bed and watching the news, which precludes my falling asleep with the TV on every night. <laughs> 
Now, listening to this podcast is uh, a young woman who is in a classroom. She is teaching. Uh, she's she's exactly who Kaya Henderson was some years ago, and she wants to be who Kaya, Hen- Kaya Henderson is today. What what do you advise her to do? What what are her steps? Run, girl, run! Don't no, I'm just kidding. Up. <laughs> I think, I think um, what I what I would advise her is um, whatever job you're currently in knock it out of the park, work really hard, be excellent, be amazing. And then the next job will come to you. Um, I haven't applied for a job, honestly, since my, my, since I graduated from college, um, I applied to teach for America and was accepted. And literally after that, I worked really hard in every job that I had and the next job came to me. And so I think if you stay focused on what you're currently in um, and do that well, the path will unfold for you. Um, I think when you try to plan out sort of a linear pathway to something, it very rarely happens. And when it does, you are not usually successful or satisfied. And so I'm a proponent of letting life take you where you're supposed to go. And I think your excellence in your current job, whatever it is, will open a next door for you. Hmm. And one final question for you. Actually, I'm lying. I have two, two questions for you. Um, okay. My other question for you is um, what, are the, what, what do you use on a daily basis to keep it all together? What's the, the, the piece of technology or the thing or the practice that, that really helps you to, um, to just make Kaya Henderson happen? Uh, there are two pieces of technology that I use. Um, my iPhone, which has everything, right? My emails, my calendar, my phone, my pictures, my everything is in the palm of our, of my hand. Um, and I could not do it without that. Um, but then I also have a notebook where, um, every week I write down the things that I need to do every week. And the, the things that I need to do, the calls that I need to make, lists for people um, who I need to follow up with. And um, throughout the week, I just slip open that notebook and I try to knock things off of my to-do list. And it keeps me honest and it keeps me abreast of what I'm supposed to be doing. So the notebook plus the iPhone, I think, are the two things that keep me going. Are you a list crosser outer? Yes. I'm a, yes. I'm a list highlighter. I don't like mm-hmm. to cross out. Uh, <laughs> and so I highlight, you know, if I start something but it's not complete, I highlight it halfway, which mm-hmm. means I'm waiting for somebody else to finish it up or to call back or something. If I finish it, I, I highlight completely through it. And so the goal every week is to have more stuff completely highlighted than not. And some weeks are better than others. Hmm. That's so interesting. You know, the thing that we hear from more leaders on this podcast than anything else is not, it's not like I wake up and I meditate for 10 minutes or I have to exercise every morning. It's this, this idea of making a list and crossing things off or, or in your case, highlighting it out. It is the most, um, the most regular thing that, uh, yeah. that leaders come here and talk about. 
and I can't do it. You know, they have all of these apps that like our to-do list apps. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a little old school. I need to write it down because writing it down like reinforces in my head that I need to do it. And I need to see it physically, like on a piece of paper. Um, and so, yeah, it is, I learned that a very long time ago and I have notebooks for, from years back, which will show you sort of what I have been doing every week, who I called, what my tasks were. And it's kind of crazy. That's amazing. Well, my final question for you is, uh, what advice would you give to your 23 year old self? I think I'd tell my 23-year-old self to take it light. Um, At 23, I was working really hard. Um, I've always had a healthy uh, attempt at balancing work and life, um, spending time with friends and family, vacationing and whatnot. But at 23, I really thought, like, literally, the world would stop spinning if I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And mm-hmm. so I tell my 23-year-old self, don't stroke out. It's going to be okay. Like, pick a handful of things that you're going to do well and don't try to do everything. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Kaya Henderson, thank you so much for your generosity of spirit, of wisdom, and just being you and uh, and your full and honest and authentic self. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We look forward to talking with you again. Like this interview? Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 